Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Backstage With. Conversations with your favourite theatre actors and creatives. I'm Mikey Worrell. Today's guest has worked in casting for over 20 years. During that time, he's cast many shows, including Mamma Mia, Hairspray and Jerry Springer the Opera. He works alongside David Grindrod, who used to be Andrew Lloyd Webber's in-house casting director and who went on to set up David Grindrod Associates. Here's my conversation with Stephen Crockett. Before we start, I just want to tell you, I am so fascinated by casting the process, the whole thing. I toyed with being an actor, but the prospect of a dance call scares me so much. I just could never go through with it. I, I agree. I mean, of all the aspects of a, of a casting process, I think the dance call, to, even to me and after you know 20 odd years of casting, is still the most fascinating because to have the ability to walk into a room, be shown a routine by somebody and pick it up just like that, it still amazes me how you know fantastic dancers are in being able to do that. And I guess it, it's um, because we live in a world where Everybody has to do everything these days, mostly. It's always fascinates me that people have that skill to be able to sort of just pick up a routine and, and go with it. You are on the other side of the panel. You're behind the table. How did that become your job? How did you get into casting? Giving you a sort of long story short, I, I had one of those midlife crises in about early 1990s. And I was very lucky enough to be asked by a company called what they called then James Grant Management, who looked after people like Anthea Turner and Philip Schofield, Zoe Ball in those days, to go in and sort of start up a theatre division for them, which I did. And I did that for about two years, and then it became quite obvious and evident that because all of their clients essentially were involved in television and radio, they never could quite make a commitment to theatre. So we sort of mutually agreed that it was coming to an end, and there I was kind of out of a job. So David Grimmel was setting up, he had worked in-house as Andrew Lloyd Webber's casting director and decided about that point to set up on his own and said to me initially, you know, would you come in, set my office up for me, run it for me, all of that, which I was happy to do. And then the sort of famous day came when there were two auditions on one day and he said to me, well, you'll have to go and do that one. I went, okay. And of course I'd sat in auditions with him, but and it was a Chicago dance audition as it happens. So I went and I did it and I did a whole week of it at the end. And I thought, oh, actually, I think I can do this. And then, of course, our lives exploded because Mamma Mia happened. And suddenly, apart from all the other projects that we had going at the time, Mamma Mia, you know, in the sort of year or so after it opened, became a kind of phenomenon of casting. And then we had the very unusual situation where Judy Kramer, who is, was our, still is our producer, said, wherever the show goes, I want either David or Stephen to go and be in the casting process because they know the show from when it first was was envisaged and, and, and the original casting. So I want them to be like a, my sort of, I, my taste, eyes and ears, as she called it. So amazingly, David and I have cast Mamma Mia all over the world. I mean, he's done it all over America and Australia. I've done it all over Europe. I've been to Russia. I mean, something that would normally never, ever happen to a casting director. But because she was so insistent on that, we had to become part of the you know, the creative team, as it were, wherever it went. And um, that went on for some years and was the most amazing experience. So we thank her constantly for that because 
it's never happened again and I, I think realistically it never will again because obviously it's an extra expense on the producers and given in the world that we're suddenly living in now and how we're going to come out of it I think casting is going to be you know a difficult you know thing to maintain and all of those things so um but it was phenomenal so so I sort of if it, a long-winded answer to your question but I kind of became a casting director almost by default but I guess it, it's something because people always say you know how do you become a casting director and the truth is there is no answer to it because everybody's got a different story and I think generally people don't set out to be that it sort of evolves I mean David would say the same thing he was a, a, a general manager for Andrew Lloyd Webber and had been company manager for him and something happened and, and he said to David oh, you'll you'll do the casting won't you and you go uh, okay and I guess you either have an aptitude for it or you don't and if you do then then you're off and running. When you say you have an aptitude for it or you don't what sort of skills would you bring into that description of having an aptitude for being a casting director? I think first and foremost you don't want have to want to be an actor because you know we have encountered people over the years have gone you know, I, I don't want to be an actor anymore. I just want to be in casting. And then somebody comes and goes, oh, I could, I could play that part. And that is fatal because you cannot have that, if you like, closeness to it. You have to be slightly detached from it. And yet, you know, obviously like and respect and admire actors, which, which we do. And so understand them, but not want to be them. Does that make sense? 100%. And I, I think, you know, it's very hard to define what it is, but, but of course, you know, you learn it over the years, you get to know people, and you sort, but you sort of have an instinct for people in the end. It's hard to define, as I say, but, you know, somebody walks into the room and you go, they've got it, whatever it is. And, you know, it is different for different shows, isn't it? Of course, you know, you take the range of something from Mamma Mia through to a traditional show like, I don't know, Oklahoma. You know, they're obviously two very different types of musical theatre, but... But of course, they still require skills. But some people can do one type of theatre very well, but not necessarily do the other. Uh, you're very lucky, I think, as, a, as an actor, if you're able to, I'm thinking of vocally, as much as anything, switch from one style of, you know, what I would call traditional musical theatre to the pop style that something like Mamma Mia requires. So, but it's, it's really just about, like most jobs, the more you do it, hopefully the better you get at it. And, and the sort of, and I don't say the easier it becomes, but, but the little bit more comfortable it becomes because you have a sense of, A, what you're looking for, particularly with a long-running show. I mean, that's a little bit easier because you have a sense of what it's about. A new show is difficult because people don't always, particularly the creative team, don't always know what they want until they see it. So you're slightly second-guessing. But with a long-running show like Mamma Mia, although it's not set in any way in stone, you can play something this way or that way, types of looks and all you know physicality of people but you do get a sense of somebody you think yes i think they're right for this show they feel right you know their, their spirit is right that doesn't sound too um, pretentious no 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 this is the theater <laughs> so when you were sent to that chicago dance call and you're sitting down behind the table for the very first time how did you feel i mean do you do you remember it and how did you how did you adjust and adapt and was there anything that took you by surprise I, I do remember it vividly because, I, of course, I was tremendously nervous. But like a lot of things, and I suppose it, 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 it's kind of slightly akin to acting that there's a certain amount of, not bluff, isn't there, but a certain amount of, you know, confidence that you have to exude. Remember, I was in my 40s, so, you know, I wasn't a kid going into it. Not that, you know, somebody younger wouldn't be able to have the same confidence. But, but I brought with me my life experience, I suppose. And you just have to kind of um, brazen it out, for want of a better word. And, you know, but I kind of knew what I was doing. I, 
I'd, I'd seen some Chicago auditions before and I'd kind of observed. So I think you just have to apply that. And then, of course, you know, you're surrounded by people who are there in the end to make the decisions. I mean, essentially, casting director is a sort of facilitator of, you know, the actor to the creative team, director, choreographer, music department. And in the end, they choose the people they like. You can, you know, discuss and, and argue, but particularly with something like Chicago, it's so specific. I don't think in all the many years that I've cast Chicago, and I've done every you know London and UK tour production since 1998, I would ever argue with a with a choreographer if they said that person hasn't got the style. Even if I think they have, I, I might say my piece, but I can only remember maybe one occasion where the, the choreographer went, "Oh, okay, then we'll put them through." They did actually get the job as it happened, but but um, but generally, you have to respect their skill. All you're doing is presenting people to them and hopefully there's enough for them to choose from. And if they choose what they think is right, then that's, that's, the, end of, that's the end of it, basically. Pre-COVID-19, talk me through what a normal day would be like in your job. Okay, so the casting process essentially is, you know, a producer would instruct us to cast a show for them, obviously in conjunction with the director and the rest of the creative team. So a breakdown goes out, a, you know, submissions come in, these days, obviously, everything's pr- pretty much done online. Both David and I, me particularly, are from the old school of, I like a CV in my hand. You know, so I, but the truth is, it's such a waste of paper. And, and, and certainly in these new days, that probably wouldn't be possible. So you have to get used to kind of scanning through uh, your submissions online. And I would say, on average, even for a long-running show like Mamma Mia!, we would get not less than 1,500 submissions for a recast. Goodness. And probably we're looking for, I think the biggest cast change we've had is 20 people. So out of 1,500, you're only got, you've only got 20 jobs, essentially. And of course, you're, you can't, unfortunately, see all anywhere near the number of, of, of submissions you get. So we have to make our selection. So my day normally would be, I'd go into the office, I'd pick up my, my list for the day, if it's a you know, vocal call, which generally is with something like Mamma Mia and a dance call at the end of each morning or afternoon, I'd go off to my auditions with my pile of CVs for the day. And, you know, we'd all come together. There would be something like Mamma Mia, the resident director would be there, associate choreographer, musical director. And we sit on a panel of four of us usually. And people come in one every five minutes, sing their song. Musical director might ask them a question about range and things like that. And then off they go. If they get through that vocal call, then there'll be a dance call, as I say, with Mamma Mia. It's usually at the end of each... Because what we try to do is minimise people having to come backwards and forwards too many times. I mean, you know, there are lots of auditions. I know that, you know, there are several calls. And, and A, that's expensive from a production point of view because people can claim their travel expenses. But also, you don't want to waste people's time. If they come into London to do a vocal call, you'd hope that you could do the next bit of it the same day so that at least they've only had one visit and not have to keep coming back with some forwards. And so that process goes on until you've finished what we call the first rounds, which are those sort of people singing their own song, doing a dance call, and then into the sort of next exciting bit, which is the recalls, where you could have honed down. I mean, I would imagine on average, we probably get about two weeks to do our first round calls. So we would probably see around 300 people, maybe a bit more in that two week period. And then you've honed down your your first rounds to recalls. Hopefully there's about, let's say, if it's men and women, 50, 60 of each, so that you've got a nice selection of people to choose from. And of course, you lose people along the way. Most actors, particularly good ones, are auditioning for more than one show, aren't they? So 
you always have to remember that, you know, just because you're auditioning them, they're not going to just keep themselves free to do your show. Uh, they're going to audition for, sometimes, I mean, no actors have four or five different auditions in a week. So you go through your recall process, which is usually music and material from the show, uh, probably another dance call. And then you sort of hone that down to your, what we call our finals, where you present possibly to the next level of creative that might be the director or associate director. And hopefully with all things crossed, you find the people you're looking for. And again, it's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle because with a long running show where you're not starting from scratch and you haven't got to find the whole cast, you're trying to find people who fit into the gaps that you have. And some of those, of course, include covers. So you've got to work the, the jigsaw out with that. But that's what makes it interesting and fascinating. Hopefully, and again, that's where my job comes in, I think, where I have to be a little bit of a mediator between the various departments, where there will be, you know, a fantastic dancer, but perhaps the voice is not as good as it could be or should be. And the musical director has to compromise and goes, well, you can have that, but then I need to have that person, even though they may not be the better dancer, because that, you know, it gives me what I need vocally. So that is sort of then my job to kind of mediate between those departments, because, of course, everybody, each department wants the best of their choice and not anybody else's essentially. So um, I, I can't, I won't say it gets heated, but it's, it's a lively debate as somebody once said. But hopefully in the end we get there and we get the people we want and, and that everybody in the, in, the, in the creative team is happy. When you get 1500 submissions and you can only see 300 people, how on earth do you decide who gets in the room and who doesn't? Very good question. It's very difficult to answer too. I mean, again, this is, I suppose it's experience. I mean you tend to look at either people you know and you trust and you like and you think are right for that show. And of course, you know, people are submitted and you know, you know, they're fantastic performers and I love them. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, if their style is very much traditional musical theatre and it doesn't lend itself to a pop style, then unfortunately they're not right for that particular show and vice versa, of course. You know, as I say, people can do both, but it is it becomes quite clear, I think, in people's lives and careers, where they sit. And um, so you have to sort of, you know, put those people aside. And of course, what you're doing is also collaborating with your team as well. And inevitably, when a breakdown goes up, because the whole world goes, can I be seen for whatever it is? So, you know, I get emails from the director and the choreographer, and, or do you think this person's right? And so, but again, it's, you know, unless they absolutely insist on seeing somebody, it's my call to sort of filter those, if you like. Um, but it is hard, and I don't say that it's, there's not exact science about it. You have to go on the instinct. You go to agency you know and trust. Um, you look where people have trained, the jobs they've done before, all those elements, which, to be honest, which is why, you know, when things are online, makes it a little bit harder, because whereas if you had a CV in front of you, I used to say to students when I talked to them, you know, I'd have a cup of tea, and I'd look through their CV, see where they trained, all of that. It's not impossible, but it's much harder online, and it takes longer, I think, because you know, after about an hour or something, you have to step away from it because all you see is like a blur. So, but in the end, it, it's, it, it has to be my choice, you know, and if I choose the wrong 300 people, then it's my fault, isn't it? <laughs> Nobody else's, but I'm touching wood while I'm talking to you. Um, I don't think that's ever happened. Of course, you know, you make some mistakes and somebody will recommend somebody to you go, okay, if you think they're right, and they'll come and you go, really? You thought they'd be right for this show? But, you know, those things happen and everybody's very understanding about that. Uh, you have to be because, you know, we're all, look, we all want the best that we can get and the best for our show. And sometimes people come out of, you know, odd situations. And, and I always try, I mean, 
we particularly used to look at people coming out of drama school. Mamma Mia is a very good example of that because, you know, in the younger sort of elements of the show, it needs fresh young people. And so kids coming out of drama school are always perfect for that. Um, and if people haven't got an agent, then we do try to see those as well. I don't want, never want actors to think that if you haven't got an agent, you're not going to get an audition. It's harder, of course. But, you know, when those unsolicited emails come in, I will look at the CV. And if they've been to somewhere where I think they've got the right training or they sound right, then, of course, I'll see them. And, you know, there are success stories out that where people have had a, an audition uh, without an agent and they've got the job. So, But it is harder, definitely. I'm sure. I'm very keen to to hear about the the very beginning of the process when the producers instruct the casting directors because when a show comes your way you obviously are trying to juggle all the other shows you've got going on or what happens when you know a show is coming into town or going on tour that you really want how do you get it how do you go after it very good question well um I, I mean you know we've been very lucky generally I mean I, I I suppose it's a cliche thing to say but kind of success breeds success and you know, when we started, we did have the benefit of Andrew Lloyd Webber, not all his shows, because obviously any shows that Cameron McIntosh produces, he casts in-house. But anything Andrew was producing himself sort of came with us from David, as it were. And we've always had kind of first refusal on any of Andrew's new shows that he's going to produce because he trusts David and he trusts us. And so that's become a sort of, you know, as long as we've done a good job for him, it, you know, he's no reason to question that. But I think following the success of Mamma Mia, we did have, we were sort of flavour of the month for quite a long time, as you can imagine, because that was not perceived as going to be a hit when it was first talked about and first certainly first opened. And then, of course, it became this phenomenon, and not only here, but, you know, around the world. Um, and so I think producers went, oh... I want those people to cast my show for me. So, of course, you get your work through that, but it, but it, it, it's, it, it's, it's mostly through recommendation. I mean, it's like, you know, actors having relationships with directors that, you know, they work with perhaps a drama school and those relationships may trust each other. I, I think it comes from that. You know, if, if you know a producer and or a director, because often a director will say, I want Grimmer Casting to cast my show, and the producer, unless he's got a violent objection to it, will go, fine, that's, that's okay, that's... Let's do a deal and, and off we go. So, but again, because we've been around a long time, we, we know all of those producers and, and sometimes they'll come to you for something, sometimes they won't and, and you have to be philosophical about that. You know, I, I don't think I want to name shows that we didn't get because that would sound like sour grapes, wouldn't it? But, but there have been things that, that originally we desperately wanted to, I particularly wanted to cast and we didn't get it. And, um, uh, but I say overall, we've been really lucky because... I think it's based on our relationship with the producers that we know well and who trust us and also the, the creative team that go, yes, we want them to cast it for us. So I think for us, to be honest, it's been relatively easy and long may that continue, I suppose, what I'm saying. Obviously, by all means, keep the, the ones you didn't get secret, but are there any ones in recent years, in recent memory, that you really, really wanted that did come off, that you did get to do, um, that you got to work on? I think personally, I mean, you know, we've had some fantastic shows come through our office. The most interesting and rewarding one for me was Jerry Springer, the opera. Mm -hmm. And that really came out of the fact that we knew the musical supervisor at the time. And it was going on at Battersea Town Hall. And they were doing a sort of like a workshop of it, I suppose, like a public workshop. And he said to me, 
look, we haven't got any money, but, you know, do you think you could help us find a couple of people? It was very much a kind of stage concert. And I said, yeah, no, of course, you know, I liked him very much and I was intrigued by the piece and we did that. And then almost immediately out of that, they decided to take it to the Edinburgh Festival. So then Avalon, who were the, um, uh, the TV company, but they were producing it because they looked after the writers. You know, the, the, the guy who ran Avalon said, look, I don't know anything about theatre, musical theatre casting. Will you do it for me? And I said, yes, of course I will. And at that point, it was only going to Edinburgh. And yes, there was a little bit of money then to do it. And, you know, they paid me whatever it was and paid for me to go to Edinburgh to see it. And I, I was ashamed to say I'd never been to the Edinburgh Festival in my life because it's always a nightmare to get there, isn't it? To find somewhere to stay. You know, it's very hard. So there I was in my late 40s going to the, the Edinburgh Festival and had the most amazing time. And then ended up going to the National Theatre. And that was just extraordinary. And, and, and the great, I mean, apart from the fact that I think it's a great score and a great idea, it was such a fantastic opportunity to cast all those people that conventionally didn't fit into a lot of the shows that we were doing. And you'd meet someone and you'd go, you're so fantastic, I don't quite know where you fit, because that show was just made up of completely of kind of, not oddballs, but just a, a, you know an eclectic mix of people, ethnicity, everything was just, I had like a completely blank canvas. And as long as, of course, it was very, very specific vocally, and Richard Thomas, who, who wrote the music, was, was a kind of stickler for that. But it, it was a long-winded process. It was hard because, you know, you were trying to please that department and also Stuart Lee, who directed it, didn't want any of what he called musical theatre people. Of course, in the end, we had to find a compromise to that. And I found in people that didn't seem to fit that, you know, mode in, in his terms, you know, with a load of lovey stories, as he called it. And I said, you know, look, you know, those people, you need people who can do it eight times a week, 52 weeks a year. So that was kind of challenging to kind of persuade him that, look, that person could, just because they've been in musical theatre, doesn't mean they aren't interesting and adaptable and all that. So, of course, when it finally came off the national, it was the most amazing thing. So, you know, I've done some fantastic jobs and, uh, you know, I don't take anything away from the, you know, extraordinary pleasure that was doing Mamma Mia in all those countries in so many different languages. But I think personally that that experience was just phenomenal. And having to fight through protests at the theatre, people saying that I would be, you know, flung into hell and all of that, and in, you know, letters as well, saying that, you know, you're damned forever. And, uh, but you have to live with that, don't you? So, but it was, it, I don't say it was scary, but I, so when we moved into the way, it wasn't about the National because they couldn't sort of get to you. But when we moved to the Cambridge Theatre, of course, they used to cluster around the stage door and the front of house. And like all those people, particularly, they find out who you are. So a couple of times I went in and it was quite scary. You're the person who casts this show. You'll be, you'll be, you know, you'll rot in hell. And um, I'm still here, so. Goodness, that's extra- quite extraordinary, isn't it? <laughs> well, it was a very, that's very extreme, I have to say. I don't think I've quite had the reaction like that on anything else. But, uh, you know, and understandably, people felt very strongly about it. They, they thought it was an insult and blasphemous. Of course, it, well, I mean, you know, if anybody knows Richard Thomas's work, you know, he, he, it's not that at all. He was just, you know, he, what he was actually doing was using that format to pinpoint the sort of uh, the reality show thing that uh, particularly that... Uh, Jerry Springer did, and I thought in a brilliant and very clever way, but um, people chose to see it as, as something else. And um, uh, of course, the more they protested, the better 
things happened, you know, which is... More publicity. Always the way is terrible, isn't it? We often say, but um, the more they shouted, the more people went. So there you go. And that, that show was a, was a big success, you know, one of the first productions to be filmed for DVD, I think. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. And we had the most amazing cast. I mean, a real, as I say, eclectic mixture of not only types and ethnicity, and but also, you know, some opera people mixing in with musical theatre people, you know, and when it was on form, it was just amazing, just amazing. And um, as I say, one of the best jobs I've ever done, I think, if I look back. Chicago, Mamma Mia, Jerry Springer, the opera. Any other highlights that are, that are worth a mention? A show that not many people know that we did right back in the beginning of our casting career was a show called Spend, 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 if you know that at all, um, based on the life of a lady called Viv Nicholson, whose husband won old-fashioned these days, but the football pools in the very early 1960s and won, I think, £152,000, which is probably the equivalent of about six or seven million. So it's like pre-lottery, all of those things. And she was the most extraordinary woman. I mean, came from absolutely nothing and vowed and did spend the lot or lost the lot. So uh, a show was written about her life. I mean, she was married five times and got herself into all sorts of scrapes and things. Really, really good show. And we were really lucky. We had uh, Barbara Dixon played. We had two, two um, Vivs. Barbara Dixon played the older Viv. But then we had, a, as she was at the time, a newcomer called Rachel Leskabak playing young Viv. And it was her first musical theatre job, certainly the first West End job. And she was nominated for a Livy Award. Since then, of course, she's been in things like Coronation Street. In fact, I think, this is public knowledge, she's just about to go back into Coronation Street as a character she played 10 years ago. An amazing actress, great voice. I mean, again, one of those moments she walked into the room and you just went, this girl, she's it. She's just it. You know, she just, she's got it, but she's perfect for this character. She was funny, sexy, sharp-tongued, all the things that you wanted this person to be. And she was it. And so I feel very fortunate that we found her and that we gave her that break. And um, I think out of that, as I say, she got a great agent and uh, television and all those things followed. So uh, that was great. So spend, spend, spend is really, you know, one, you know, it's one. Because I, I always look at those things, you know, thinking before I spoke to you about, you know, my desert island discs of shows and things like that and things that you would take with you and spend is one of those shows I still listen to. Okay. Not every week, of course, but uh, on a regular basis because it's such a nice, simple score, but it's about something. You know, I love shows that are about something. The, the, the other one, I think, you know, more recent times, of course, is the original London production of Hairspray, which we cast. And I think I can tell you the story because he talks about it, but Michael Ball want, desperately wanted to play Edna. And the Americans were coming over and I think David was away the week that they were seeing those people. And so I took those auditions and they said, who is Michael Ball? We, we don't know him. Oh, goodness. So I had to go to his agent and say, um, look, you know, they'd really, really like to meet him, but they don't know who he is. So he'll have to come in an audition. And I don't think Michael had auditioned for 20 years. But bless his heart and to give him credit, he rang us up because we knew him a little bit as well. And I said, you know, Michael, we wouldn't put you through this unless we had to, but I think if you want this job, you're going to have to come in and meet the people and sing the song and all that. And he did, and he was tremendously nervous about it because I think it meant so much to him. He wanted to play the part. Came in, of course, they loved him, and he got the role. And, of course, he's still, unfortunately, he's not going to play it this year, is he? But he's going to do it again next year. Perfect. I mean, funny, and, of course, sang it beautifully. But it's just a very interesting lesson, if you like, that, 
you know, you never want to make anybody do something they don't need to do or don't want to do. But sometimes for even an actor of that level, if they don't come in and meet the, the team, particularly an American team, and it's, you know, it's, I don't think, it's certainly not meant as any disrespect, if they don't really know who this person is, they're not going to cast them. And I can say to you that I guess if Michael had not come in, he would not have got the job, we'd have cast somebody else. And, you know, that still, that now wouldn't still be part of his life. So, you know, I take tremendous um, respect for him for coming in and doing the audition and getting the job. And uh, as I say, I think it's a lesson to other actors who think they're perhaps sometimes too grand. It's an offer or nothing. And you go, well, that's fine. But, you know, often, you know, if you haven't seen somebody for a long time, you go, well, can they still actually do it? So, you know, we're always very keen that people don't, you know, get too grand because I think that leads to other problems. You think, well, if they're too grand to come in and even meet the people they're going to work with, what it's going to be like when they get into rehearsal room and, you know, into rehearsals, uh, it, you know, it doesn't all go well, I don't think. But, of course, there are times when you do cast somebody because everybody on the team knows them and trusts them and, and, that, and that happens. But I'm full of admiration for somebody like Michael who's prepared to uh, put themselves on the line and, um, you know, and it had a happy ending. So It did. It's good. I, I loved that original production of Hairspray and the casting was second to none. So congrats on that. Thank you, Mikey. It was, I mean, again, I think it's another show that's about something, isn't it? For all its lightness and its humour and it has plenty of that. But when you listen to those songs, you know, I Know Where I've Been, sung by uh, Motorbell. And I mean, they just break your heart. And, you know, just that whole business of trying to sort of break down those barriers was just, you know, extraordinary. So, I th you know, I think it's a really special show in that sense that, it, that it, it combines lightness of touch with real heart and, and a true story. And, uh, you know, we loved working on it. It was a fantastic, fantastic thing. I was talking to somebody about it yesterday and we, we just agreed that it, it's, it's almost the perfect musical. I can't think of one flaw in it. No, no, I agree. I agree. There's not, a, there's not a song too many. There's, you know, everybody gets something nice to do. You know, there's a lovely uh, change for Penny at the end where she suddenly comes on looking fabulous. And, and it, it's got everything, hasn't it? It's, mm. it's great. And even, the, even the scene work is great. Like the, the dodgeball scene is, is fabulous. Yeah, yeah. And all that stuff between. And it's very interesting, the stuff between Edinburgh and Wilbur, which, you know, could always be a little bit uncomfortable, particularly when they kiss. But... I think, and again, that's one of the, you know, Michael's tremendous skills is that nobody felt embarrassed by it. Nobody felt, oh, there's two men kissing. It, it, was, it was just a lovely couple who absolutely adored each other. There was nothing sexual about it. It just felt really, you know, warm and emotional. And, you know, I think that, that's, that's at the heart of it, isn't it? That, that there's, no, there's no sending up of anything. It's not, it's not drag. It, it's just it's just a man playing that that character and i think it when played well it's it's fantastic absolutely i agree you, you've kind of alluded to it in, in one of your previous answers but and and feel free to name as many names as you like here but when people walk into the room there must have been moments like you had with rachel where they they light up and you're going goodness me who is this person can you talk about any of those experiences Ooh, it's good, isn't it? Because some of them now are so well known to me. I mean, you know, one of my favourite people, and she happens to be playing Donna in Mamma Mia, is Maz Murray. I mean, you know, I met her years ago, and her sister Gina is also equally good, but there is something about Maz. And, you know, Maz is one of those fascinating people that she really, really wanted to be in Mamma Mia. And I think at the time we had a Donna that wouldn't 
people didn't want to leave, but she was so keen that she said, I'll, I'll play anything. You know, what, what do you want me to play? And all we had at the time was Tanya. She was a phenomenal Tanya. I mean, really funny, sharp, witty, whatever. But I knew, I'm, you know, I'm sure I knew that she could play Donna. But she's a very big personality. And, you know, when, when the role became available, she said, can I audition for it? You know, and I said, yes, absolutely. I said, but you have to kind of put Tanya away and not bring any of that because otherwise people go, oh, well, she's playing it as Tanya, isn't she? And um, to give her a credit, she came in, she came in, I don't say she dressed down for it, but she did uh, because Tanya, of course, is very glamorous, isn't she? And, you know, fabulous designer clothes and all of that. And Donna's lived on an island for 15 years wearing dungarees and a scarf in her hair and all of that stuff. And she just, and she just, I mean, it was like a chameleon, just completely. And as much as I knew her and loved her, to see that transformation in an actor, it's, it's just, I was just blown away. And I thought, well, unless, you know, if, if nobody else agrees with me, I'm going to, I'm going to scream because, but of course they fortunately did. She just was phenomenal. And, um, you know, hopefully she'll come back and play Donna for us when we, when we come out of this, this COVID situation. Do you ever have dream roles on people's behalves? It, I talk to a lot of actors and I'm, I'm always very careful about asking about their dream roles because I know so many of them don't like to share it. But are there people who, who you've worked with where you look at them and you go, oh, I'd love for you to play this part one day if it ever comes up? Like Maz, for instance, I would love her to play The Witch in Into the Woods. Yes, yes. That, that's hard. I, I tend not to because I think... I think... That, that it's hard to sort of impose that on somebody. And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes I can be surprised because, you know, where I've said, you know, people fit into a certain category of, of style or something. And then, you know, what I love is when perhaps an agent will say to me, I really think this person could play that part. And I'll go, you know what, I don't really see that. I don't see it. So it's almost a reverse of your question in a sense that, that, that I don't see it, but... I think and hope I'm always open-minded enough to go, if somebody feels that strongly about it, then I probably should consider it. And I think with that exception, I've always done that. As I say, if it's an actor I know I can know and a, an agent I trust, then I will, I will do that. And I have been, you can ask me for an example and I can't give you one, but, but I have been surprised where somebody's gone, wow, they can do that or they can be like that. Whereas I always thought, and, and, and actually, in a sense, Maz is an example of that because she's such a, a big personality, isn't she? And not that Donna isn't, but, but Donna needs something else, um, much more grounded, much less theatrical, if you like, which, you know, Maz is, and, and she won't mind me saying that. But, you know, to then find the, the strength to, 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 to wipe that away and be something else. Of course, that's what an actor should do, isn't it? But, but I think in musical theatre, it's much harder because you get into a groove, don't you, of what you play and how you play it and all of that. And to strip all that away and not be what people think you are is quite hard to do and for hard for other people to see. So uh, as I say, I think I'm reversing your question. I, I, I like to be surprised by, by somebody challenging me and going, you know, why aren't you seeing so-and-so for this? And I'll go, oh, why aren't I seeing them for that? You know, because I hadn't thought about it or I looked at it and thought, mm, I don't think they're right for that. So that, that's the excitement for me is almost, you know, as I say, it's not, you know, I don't hold the keys to this in the sense that, you know, it has to be a collaborative uh, relationship with everybody, not just the creative team, but with the actors and with the agents as well. You know, you cannot, you cannot assume that you know everything and you're right about everything. You're absolutely wrong. 
not you know you're you're more likely to be wrong than right I would say of course some questions about the audition room itself are there any songs that you are sick of hearing or are, are there any songs that you wish people did more that maybe they shy away from because they think they might be overdone Yes, very good question. I never get sick of songs. You know, actors ask me all the time, you know, you must have heard this 20 times. I don't care. If it's the right song for the show, then it's the right song for you to be singing. All I ever say jokingly is, you just sing it better than everybody else. It doesn't matter how many times we've heard it. A good song is a good song. And again, I always say to actors, please, please don't be searching for the song. Oh, I've got this song, nobody's ever heard of it. Generally, if nobody's ever heard of it, there's a reason for that, isn't there? I mean, of course, there are gems hidden away and, and things like that. Generally, they, somebody has discovered those gems, haven't they? And they've, they've sung them or you know, recorded them, whatever it is. So I always say, don't overcomplicate it. Choose songs that obviously, of course, suit your voice and your range. But of course, they're right for the show. But don't shy away from singing a well-known song. Because the truth about it is particularly from the musical director's point of view, if it's a song he doesn't know and he doesn't really know how it goes, it's hard to judge whether it's right or not. Whereas if you sing, I don't know, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning from Oklahoma, for instance, sort of everybody knows how that goes. So if you don't sing it right, then the musical director will hear that and go, well, you know, you can't hit that note or you're, you're off key there or whatever it might be. So, of course, you know, there is an element of actors going, well, I want to sort of not, not pull the wool over their eyes, but, but, you know, give them something that they're not familiar with. But I, I always think it's, it's better to learn a good song well, sing it well, and don't worry about what, what other people are doing. But it has to be the right style for the show. The number of people come in, for instance, I keep quoting Mamma Mia, but because I do that so much and so often, I suppose it's in my mind, you know, with a, with a traditional musical theatre song and the musical director will say it's lovely and you sing it lovely but it's not I can't tell whether you can whether you've got kind of pop lick in your voice I need something I need a Bacharach and David song I need a Beatles song I need something that's in that style that will tell me whether you can sing the way we need you to sing for our show and I just go oh I, I thought this would do well no you know it won't do so uh, I'm always you know trying to tell people to obviously make sure you've got a repertoire of songs that suit every style of show you're going in for, do your research before you go in. I generally say don't sing a song from that show at, the, at your first audition because it somehow imposes something on it that the musical department might not want. If we give it to you to sing, that's fine. And then we can work on it if they don't think you're, you're doing it right. But, but you know, do your research, you know, if you're going in for, you know, traditional musical theatre. So, I mean, there's so many beautiful songs to choose from. You know, choose one of those and sing it well saying in the audition room have you ever been in an audition where someone's come in and they've clearly thought about what to wear and they, they've put in some effort but they've gone in the completely wrong direction well yes but it's always interesting i mean I, 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 you know actors again often ask me you know should i dress for the part and i go well you know you have to give us a little bit of imagination hopefully that we don't if you don't come in wearing an 18th century costume we, you know, we can believe that you could actually wear one, but, but you, you know, there are sort of rules around that, even if they're unwritten. If you're coming in for Mamma Mia, you know, they're young people, they're on holiday in Greece, you know, they're not coming in in, you know, in sort of, I don't know, kind of overly made up or too, too you know, the wrong style or something. But so come in nice and simple as if you were on holiday on the beach, basically. But I don't think it does any harm to dress for, you know, within reason. I think, I remember, funny enough, we did an open call for Hairspray and basically people came dressed as Tracy. 
they had like sticky out skirts and, and you know, everything and the hair and, and all that. That can be a little bit frightening because you feel like you've already imposing on it what you think it's going to be. And that's not it. By all means, you could come dressed in a, you know, early 60s style or something. So it's very hard because, you know, there are so many things for actors to worry about that, you know, it's, it, it, you don't want to give them the wrong advice. I, I think they've got to wear what they think is right and comfortable for them. And also, but also have a nod to what they're auditioning for. But, but and of course, the other thing that happens a lot is that people wear the same thing in every audition. I think if they come to a first round audition and they get through, they think whatever they wore was lucky. And actually that's quite useful because if somebody was wearing a bright orange shirt and they come back, you know, when you've seen so many people and you're trying to re-identify, you go, oh, I remember him or her, you know, they wore that before. And, and I don't mind that because I think that helps us a little bit. And they obviously feel it's given them a, you know, an edge to, to, to get a recall or something. But I'm very wary about advising people about what to wear, how to dress. I think on the first audition, it should be as blank a canvas as it can be in terms of dress. And what you're giving is your voice and your, you know, your, your performance. And, um, you know, we should be judging on that. Mm -hmm. 2020 has thrown a number of curveballs in your direction. COVID-19 for one, but also Black Lives Matter. How do you think both of these things will affect or are affecting casting? Black Lives Matter, I, 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 you know, personally as an office, we've always been, you know, conscious or unconscious, if you like, of, you know, not worrying about that in terms of cast. You know, we always want to cast the best people we can and we want to spread our net as widely as we can. And of course, that, that, that means going into, you know, non-white, whatever that means, but into every sort of area to cast because so many shows, even if you're not talking about colourblind casting, you know, Mamma Mia is a prime example of being able to, be as free with that as, as you can, a, a wonderful mix of people from everywhere. But the truth is they have to be good enough. And, you know, I never want to be in a situation where you feel compromised to cast for the sake of something. The best people should get the job. And, you know, wherever those people come from, that and a lot of that goes back to training and things like that. But, you know, those things are getting better and better. So whilst being conscious of it, I think we're very much, we've felt that we've always tried to, be open-minded about the casting and not rigid about that has to be this or that has to be that you know we want the best people in those shows and if they come from the ethnic background that's that's how much the better and good and we will always try and strive to you know to bring all that together as far as COVID is concerned I mean it we have done some auditions we're very lucky that we've got projects going on for next year so we are just kind of working on those we've done a lot of self-taping which is fine, but I, I, I find that, like, you know, looking through CVs online, it's harder because it serves some people well, others it doesn't. You know, I've looked at people and gone, I think in the room they would have been much better. But, you know, we are where we are and we have to deal with that. David has done some in-the-room auditions a couple of weeks ago for a project he's working on. But, you know, it's fraught with tension because, you know, you've got to check everybody's temperature when they come in. Everybody has to be sprayed. People are wearing masks, obviously not the singers, but the pianists had to be positioned far enough away from the actors so that there was no question of them. No music, no paper music passing hands. Everything was on an iPad. It creates an extra tension in the room, which you could do without, frankly, as I've said earlier, that, you know, there's enough tension for the actor and for everybody as well. It's not just them. I mean, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're hyped as well. 
and I don't know where it will end. I mean, I've got, I'm going back to Chicago. I've got there's a tour of Chicago going out next year, and I'm supposed to be doing dance calls from the seventh of September. How we're going to manage those, I don't know, because of course you can only have we think about ten people in a room, and normally we'd have probably double that, maybe more, depending on the size of the room. So that's going to make those calls much harder. It means whoever's teaching the call is going to have to work twice as hard because they'll have to teach as many calls. You know, we'll be doing longer days, whatever it is. It's hard. I, I don't know how we, and yet there's still no real sense of when we're going to open again, is there? So it makes it very difficult to kind of enthuse about it because, of course, we'll come back. We know that that will happen. But in what form and what will fall by the wayside in the meantime, I don't know. But, um, you, you know, if there could be some sense of, Yes, we will definitely, you know, reopen in, I mean, Chicago is supposed to open in March. I think and hope that that will happen. But I have no real basis for saying that to you. Uh, it feels as if it will be right by then. But, you know, with pantomimes having just been told that they're not going to play and that takes us through till probably early February for most of those, doesn't it? It's tough. That's creeping towards the time when, you know, we'd be opening something else. So I don't know. It, it's going to be very hard. But But having said that, I think, Theatre is too an important part of this country's economic life, apart from anything else, but certainly culturally. I think, you know, people love the theatre and I think they will want to go back as long as they feel it's safe to do so. And we'll just have to manage as best we can in the meantime and get through the auditions and help the actors give the best they can in whatever form that might be. But it's, um, I, I'm, I'm finding it particularly hard because it, I'm, I'm also the sort of person I like to be in my office where everything is, I'm finding it quite hard to do things from, not hard, but, you know, it's a learning curve to do things from Zoom. You know, the signal goes down, you lose bits of conversation. I can't get at all my files, but we will manage and I'm sure we will come through it and uh, emerge stronger and finer or something the other side. Well, we hope. The last thing I wanted to ask you was, is there one particular myth around casting that you would love to debunk? Oh, that's a good question. I've never, I've never been asked that before, Mikey. I, I, I would like to probably like to say that you know we don't hold all the power. That's probably doing us a disservice, isn't it? But but we don't. I think you know actors have to remember. I think they have to remember that we're human beings too. That we make mistakes. Of course, we try not to, but are always willing to learn and to be be proved wrong, if that's the right way of phrasing it. But in the end, we are the conduit between the actors and the creative team. You know, I think my job is to make the actor feel comfortable in the room and make the, help them give the best audition they can. I can't do the audition for them, obviously, but, but if I can make them feel comfortable and walk into the room and not feel any more nervous than they are, then I think that's important. But, you know, I think it, it, it's, it's such a collaborative thing, casting, that I think sometimes people think we hold all the power. Actually, we don't. Done in the best way, in the right way, it is a collaborative, it's a team effort. And... Um, that's when I think we do the best work and um, get the best people for the shows. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I've learned so much from you. It's been really marvellous to hear all about your career. Thank you, Mike. I hope I wasn't rambling too much. It's always good to talk about what you do without sort of boasting about it. But, you know, I generally love what I do. And um, it's good to remind yourself when, when people like you ask you challenging questions, it's very useful to go, hmm, how do I feel about that? Why do I do that? So it's good. I've, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Next time on the podcast, I'll be joined by former Strictly Come Dancing champion and star of Midnight Tango, Flavia Cacace. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Bye.